I'm Al Filreis, and this is Pong Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive at writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Sally Van Doren, poet and artist, author of three poetry collections, Sex at Noon Taxes, 2008, Possessive, 2012, and her newest book, a wonderful book, Sally, Promise of 2017, has received the Walt Whitman Award from the Academy of American Poets and has taught at the 92nd Street Y, Washington University, and in the St. Louis Public Schools, and who posts daily excerpts, which I follow daily, from her ongoing poem, The Sense Series, via Instagram, at Sally Van Doren, all one word, Sally Van Doren. And by Huda Fakhradin, a specialist in Arabic literature with a focus on modernist movements and trends in Arabic poetry, whose book Metapoesis in the Arabic Tradition approaches the modernist free verse movement in relation to the Abbasid Mukhta movement as literary crisis and metapoetic reflection, who's been a great partner on various projects with us here at the Kelly Writers House, including a powerful semi-spontaneous reading by poets from predominantly Muslim countries whose immigrants were prohibited by the Trump administration in January 2017, an event held at the Writers House called Poetry Unbanned. And by Susan Schultz, poet, teacher, critic, editor, publisher, author of several volumes about memory and two others about forgetting. Among them, most recently, Memory Cards, Thomas Traherne series, Talisman Press 2016, and Memory Cards, Simone Weil series, Equipage in the UK 2017, who has also published two volumes of Dementia Blog with Singing Horse Press, which is here in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Oh, no longer. It hasn't been here for many, many years. It's Since in San Gil, Diego. Isn't that Gil Ott's singing horse? Gil Ott gave it to Paul Naylor many years ago. And it's in? It's in San Diego. San Diego. A little closer to Hawaii. Author also of A Poetics of Impasse in Modern and Contemporary American Poetry and founder, famously, of Tinfish Press, which publishes experimental poetry from the Pacific region, has resided for many years on Oahu with her family and who is, I add, with Deep regret and consternation, a lifelong St. Louis Cardinals fan. Go and let the record. Sh- oh no, we have two Cardinals fans. Let the record show that Susan did a kind of Kirk Gibson pump. They're wrong team, but Susan, thank you for coming all this way from Hawaii. Thank You've been you. in New York and here. Mm-hmm. It's really great to see you again. Well, thanks. It's great to be back. It's just, uh, it's oddly snowing outside. That's, you're not really used to that, even no, though no, no, no. you're originally from St. Louis? I grew up in the D.C. suburbs where oh, if right. it snowed that. this much, the world ended. And how'd you pick up the Cardinals? I was born in Belleville, Illinois. Okay. There you go. When did we meet? In the seven, late 70s, I want to say, or late, no, early No, no, no. We met in graduate school. That yeah. was the 80s for me. For you in the 80s. Well, it's great to see you again. And Sally, great to have you back at the writer's house. This time on the good side of the microphone. Delighted to be here. And anyone listening to this poem talk will be able to find the 
video and audio recordings of a wonderful reading conversation we did earlier on this very day. And Huda, always good to see you. Good to be here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, first time on Punk Talk, and I hope we'll do it lots. Me too. Well, we're here together to talk about a poem by Sylvia Plath. It is called The Stones and was written in October sometime, or more likely early November of 1959, and appears as the seventh poem in a seven-part sequence called Poem for a Birthday. But we're going to, for the sake of argument, consider The Stones a poem in its own right, which I think most people do, although it's part of a sequence. Our recording of the poem comes from a studio performance Plath did for BBC Records sometime between 1960 and 1962, and this particular one, we think, dates from 1962. So here now is Sylvia Plath performing The Stones. This is the city where men are mended. I lie in a great anvil. The flat blue sky circle flew off like the hat of a door when I fell out of the light. I entered the stomach of indifference, the wordless cupboard. The mother of pestles diminished me. I became a still pebble. The stones of the belly were peaceable, the headstone quiet, jostled by nothing. Only the mouth hole piped out, importunate cricket, in a quarry of silences. The people of the city heard it. They hunted the stones, taciturn and separate, the mouth hole crying their locations. Drunk as a fetus, I suck at the paps of darkness. The food tubes embrace me. Sponges kiss my lichens away. The jewel master drives his chisel to pry open one stone eye. This is the after hell. I see the light. A wind unstoppers the chamber of the ear, old worrier. Water mollifies the flint lip. And daylight lays its sameness on the wall. The grafters are cheerful, heating the pincers, hoisting the delicate hammers, a current agitates the wires, volt upon volt. Catgut stitches my fishes. A workman walks by carrying a pink torso. The storerooms are full of hearts. This is the city of spare parts. My swaddled legs and arms smell sweet as rubber. Here they can doctor heads or any limb. On Fridays, the little children come to trade their hooks for hands. Dead men leave eyes for others. Love is the uniform of my bald nurse. Love is the bone and sinew of my curse. The vase, reconstructed, houses the elusive rose. Ten fingers shape a bowl for shadows. My mendings itch. There is nothing to do. I shall be good as new. Susan, what the speaker is in quite a situation. It's a little fluid, but take a stab. Who's the speaker and what's the situation? Uh, it's very interesting because the eye does not necessarily seem to be terribly attached to a, a human speaker. 
which is what we always associate. You know, we think of Plath as confessional, as writing about herself, but this I is oddly detached. The voice is oddly English. The lichens stick out. As for opposed an, to lichens. As an American poet. Um, Not but, to mention the accent. Did we say that? That's what I mean. The, yeah. the, uh, she sounds oddly English. And uh, she was writing this while in the United States, probably at Yaddo that fall, oh, the writer's okay. colony. So she okay. was in the U.S. living in Boston. Okay. Well, it's 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 about, and it's odd that the first line is, um, this is the city where men are mended, but clearly she is, uh, this is the voice of someone who is, has, has become a kind of object and is being put back together mm -hmm. by doctors and workmen, almost like a doll. Um, the line that really sticks out to me as a kind of mixing of the natural and the artificial is my swaddled legs and arms smell sweet as rubber, where swaddling suggests that birthday, the, the, the birth, and but arms do not usually smell like rubber. That that's my my first that's take a good, on it. That's a good start. Uh, Huda, Sally, you want to let's follow up on the the I. Huda, what do you make of this person, this speaker? Well, I agree on the conflation of the natural and the the object, the uh, the human, the focus of the poem, where the center of it to me is that that line: "The jewel master drives his chisel to pry open one stone eye." I think that's the counterpoint of the poem, where the stone suddenly has an eye mm. and is looking, is opening it. A stone with subjectivity, a stone with perception, but also a stone being uh, made, being worked on by others, and that's another really important point to me. Reading this this poem stands out. It's it's the agony of being put together by others mm -hmm. and the stone image drives that and i see that too sort of carried throughout the tension between the inanimate and the animate and also with this i there seems to be a little bit of a narrative progression from the beginning of the i lying on the great anvil mm -hmm. and then um it becomes this still pebble but then there is the moment, this line, this is the after hell, I see the light. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's clearly a turning point, too. And I love the idea of the after hell. Does that mean the person has been through hell and now is on the other side? Mm -hmm. Or is after hell still sort of a form of hell? Mm -hmm. I don't usually do this because I'm into the flow of conversation. But I'm going to add sort of a footnote there on the after hell. Um, in 1958, she and Ted Hughes moved to Boston, living in Beacon Hill. They mostly wanted to write, but Plath took a part-time job at the Massachusetts General Hospital, um, which made me think in a very superficial way that she is imagining herself as one of the people that she may have encountered in that volunteer work or that part-time work, as well as seeing in third person such people being put back together. And I'll just add that at the same time, she audited Robert Lowell's writing seminar, met Anne Sexton in that class at Harvard, and this was exactly the moment where Skunk Hour is written, and I Too Am Hell is such a 
Lowell, it's a Lowellian line. This is the after hill. So that was a conversation stopping footnote. But <laughs> I want to go back to the way the stones as a figure are deployed. Can we four of us accumulate instances of the various ways that stones, pebbles, quarry get accumulated? Who wants to start? Well, you have first have the mother of pebbles, but then right. you have the headstone quiet. So it suggests that the self is a graveyard. Yes. At the beginning. Good. Which is, uh, That's one. Huda, you want to add one? Well, the, the stone is another very striking thing that I've made many connections to. We can arrive at them later. But the stone is, is a very old thing. Like There's nothing as old as stone. And with right. stone, the stepping stones of this poem, we arrive as being good as new. Mm. Something there to be unpacked. I'll say. Okay, we want to hear more about that. <laughs> Sally, I wondered a lot about what the mouth hole was and if that actually, I thought of a stone fountain with a, a mouth, you know, that sort of projects water sometimes, or if it's the beginning of a opening of a cave, because right. even though mouth does not suggest something stone-like, I right. felt like they were being and compared. And connected to the paps of darkness. Yeah. And drunk as a fetus. So we have... <laughs> I suck at paps of darkness. So there so, I mean, are bodies in stone, and there's mm -hmm. a fetus. Yeah. There's all these enclosed. Well, it's like a fetus. Yeah. Yeah. These enclosed. So bodies. the you know if if we were, if all of Poem Talk's listeners were tenth graders or ninth graders, the first thing, and any anybody who's been in a situation where they've been busted up pretty badly, and they are now encased in, kind of like there's almost like a body cast quality and the whole mouth hole is where this person is fed um, the mendings itch when you have that itch under the cast so you know it could be a 10th grader reading but I thought I would just throw it out there which is that ultimately she's imagining the subjectivity of someone who is being mended by the by way of encasements in a hospital S simple enough and yet she's mixing the metaphors and moving them around constantly. Mm -hmm. Can we accumulate one more evidence, one more example of the mixing of metaphors or the shifting of the register? Well, when she brings in the workman walking by carrying a pink torso. Horrifying. That's but it could that's, be that's a mannequin. Twilight it could be, it could be a flamingo. completely <laughs> shifted scene. No, yeah. And I mean, also it is... to trade hooks for hands when you would uh, expect the opposite. That's right. And then to well, go back to earlier in the poem, the hunted stones. Right. Yeah. They're, they hunted the stones. She likes to, so. Plath likes to reverse mm. illness and health constantly. Love is the bone and sinew of my curse. It strikes me that there's a lot of, we're supposed to imagine someone who's being recomposed, a person who's being put back together, sculptured, sculptured, um, and yeah, and the body parts are being reassembled, but we keep seeing decomposition rather than recomposition. And decomposition, Susan Schultz, is a great stay against the plath that most people think of, um, which is so composed, so compositional. She tends to use, as you noted, herself as subjectivity. Here it's not clear. It seems to wander. I'm inviting you, Susan, to say something about the usual plath and the way in which this might be different. 
I was just to sort of run with this a little bit. I was thinking that it's because we know Plath in a certain way. It's very difficult, at least for me, and maybe for other women of my generation, not to read her confessionally ourselves. As in, in high school, we were very drawn to Plath uh, because she seemed to express what we felt. But this is kind of before that Plath. This is said to be the turning point, that period at Yaddo when she came into her own. And this poem is, not this poem, but the series is said to be a turning point. And yet this is the last one, and it's different. But I think that if you read sort of backwards, that you can see that those late poems, the famous ones, are, while they're more violent and angry, they're equally composed. Right. I guess I'm suggesting, Sally, that I see some decomposition here. Le- that she strikes me as less composed here. Does that make any sense to you, or do you want to add something to this question of the confessional? Well, it's interesting that she uses this image of the stones, which are so composed, you know, but she is still resisting the firmness that a stone would present by these sort of the decomposition. Mm. I do see, though, that um, there is some, like, rejuvenation in it with the line, after the after the hell, I see the light, and also there's nothing to do, I shall be good as new. But Isn't that I, ironic? I find that last line really scary mm. because I shall be good as new doesn't mean that she wants to be. Yes, I agree. Um, and when and the only moment in the poem where I thought I heard her actual voice come through was my mending's itch, and it just sounded like, oh, if only not. But isn't that healing? Yeah. But I don't think she. I, but I get that sense that healing is a very ambivalent thing. Yes, right. Huda, you were going to say something. A yes, ago. yes, exactly. I when I arrived at that last. Last two lines, the thought that struck me was that it's really devastating to have survived mm-hmm. sometimes. There's something very devastating about having made it. Yes, it's cure. Mendings are a mark of being healed and fixed and cured, but they're also reminders of having been broken and put together by others. I think the thing of being mm-hmm. put together by others is is agonizing. And in to say text. there's nothing to do. Nothing she to do. She has no part of that. Healing, if that's what it is. There's something very lonely about having, of being, in being new. Speaking of new, new, the poem ends with newness, but it also begins with what strikes me as so Eliotic <laughs> that it might refer to new in the sense of modernism. So I could be overreading, but who do I want to invite you to comment on this? So this is the city where men are mended. It's so Eliotic. Mm-hmm. City, not the hospital, but hospitals can seem kind of like cities, but I see, you know, reaching for some great modern dilemma. And then the ironic I take to be ironic, I shall be good as new. So am I way off in thinking about newness and modernism here? No, I'm trying. To, I'm going to try to hold back now. Don't hold back. <laughs> the, the idea of stone, the, the fact that this piece is titled The Stones, and we in my seminar on Arabic poetry were reading a pre-Islamic poem. Stones in the Arabic, in Arabic poetics are central. They are the, a conversation with stone is usually where the poem begins. The archetypal Arabic poem opens with a poet 
questioning stone in search of poetic voice. And this is a convention where all, all poets before him, he's usually a man, have stood. So it's, it's standing under the pressure of others and what they've done and the voices they've found and trying to find a singular individual voice there. So, and then being new is a, is a breaking away from that, is a surviving, is a coming out with mendings, but marks of others having influence, influenced you and how you deal with that and put it together into something possibly new, but not new without the effect of others. Wow. There. Can I tease Scars. you, Al? Please, and say yes. that uh, Men Are Mended is mending wall, which is made of stones. There is some of that. I mean, it's all about putting the stones back and saying, and that's stay also there where not you a mending, are. Right? So we've got Elliot, we've got Frost, we've, I mentioned Lowell, and we've got Retke. She was reading, mm. she was reading mm. Theodore Retke at Yaddo when she wrote this. And she was deeply influenced by Retke's suffering, his mental illness, his several attempts at suicide. Hers had been 1953. Uh, she discovered Hughes, that Hughes... Um, was or clearly would be or maybe always had been unfaithful to her in 1958. Everything seems to be falling apart. Um, and, and Hughes is a poet. So you have all of those influences. And I think Huda's suggesting that, the po that this poem might be metapoetic in the sense that it's a... She's supposedly finding her own... And I hate to read it as an allegory, but having a woman poet mm -hmm. situated in a hospital, it's a city where men are mended. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's not actually being mended because she's got all these male influencers, but she's not male. And how is she ever going to put herself back together again? Sally, what are you thinking? I'm thinking that the stones are very important to her. I actually, as I was reading this poem, and then I went back through the collected poems and started reading and noting every time that she that? has. There are, well, she mentions stones frequently. Do you have a, a few poems where listed um, there? Hardcastle Crags and uh, Point Shirley. I'm in a stone in Parliament. Mm -hmm. My handwriting is really bad. Tulips. It's a well-known poem, The Rival. And she also mentioned somewhere that um, she grew up on the northern shore of Boston along that harbor there. That's where her grandparents lived when her father was dying. And so that going to – looking at the stones, walking along the stones on the coast is a very important experience for her. So where are we, Susan? To, to, to bring it back to her, since inevitably we want to look back to her, if you read um, – the um, three lines, heating the pincers, hoisting the delicate hammers, a current agitates the wires, volt upon volt. This was the era of electroshock therapy at its worst. And she, Which Lowell was receiving as she was, he was teaching her, although she hadn't. She hadn't yet? Not, no, I think she had in 53, but not at this moment. Right, but she had experienced so. it. So I there is so. this Someone sense will correct us if that's not right. Not just being laid out on the anvil and fixed physically, but also shocked into this newness that it, for her is a, a problem. Would we all agree that this is really about psychological ill health rather than broken bones and... A hospital where the mending 
his yes, spiritual except that she life. is observing others. You know, here they can doctor heads, so that's a reference well, to that the could psychological. Be psychological right? But then, or any limb and the little children coming in, so she's mm-hmm. analyzing herself, but also being influenced by other people's experiences. Let's talk about the mixing of the metaphors. We started to talk about it a little bit in a, in a kind of exciting way. It gets kind of out of control. There's so many different things going on. Uh, let's take the first two triads. Um, this is the city where men are mended. I lie on a great anvil. The flat blue sky circle, not sure what that is, flew off like the hat of a doll when I fell out of the light. I entered the stomach of indifference, the wordless cupboard. There's all kinds of crap going on here. There's also that way she moves from literal to abstract, stomach of indifference. Um, Who would ever let – what poetry silences. writing workshop teacher would ever let someone write a poem with the stomach of indifference? Robert Lowell, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Huda, when you prepared this to talk with us about it, what what – in a positive sense, got you excited, happy. What would you like about this? That I'm going to be talking about it with you. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. What do I like about it? Yeah. I find it devastating. Did you think it was a, do you think it was a good choice for Plath, for poem talk? Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I like this idea that there's this story around this poem as being where her voice comes out. Right. I'm really interested in where poets find their voice, whatever that means. Yeah, well, it is and said the, that this is when she found yeah. her voice. And the fact that it's, you know, using all these images and mixing these metaphors. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go and, back to your question about looking yeah. at all the different metaphors, I was struck by love is the bone and sinew of my curse, the vase, the, the image of the reconstructed vase, and then followed by the fingers that shape a bowl for shadows, the shadows and the vase, and the rose in the vase. And why elusive? <laughs> Isn't this what elusive poets we admire do, which is to turn reverse assumptions using language, create something not expected? For me, when the food tubes embrace her, embrace is very tough there because it, you imagine her tangled by the food food tubes. But embrace is like affection. There's very little affection there's otherwise. The, there's the bald nurse. Mm. Love is the uniform of my bald nurse. I yeah. love that line. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what to do with it. I have no idea but what it's about, it's, but I love it's, that line. It's kind of creepy like the... Uh, like the pink torso passing by the door in the hospital room. But but after the food tubes embrace her or the speaker, sponges kiss my lichens away. So that strikes me as weird because <laughs> lichens would form on someone who's been made of stone through these casts and has been there a long time. It reminds me of the Colossus of the various stone monuments, usually to the father, or to an authority, to a male authority, whether it's a poetic authority or a patriarch, actual patriarch. And here, the sponges, meaning somebody, the, the bald nurse is wiping her down or something, but, but clearing the moss away. And it strikes me that she has become a kind of stone monument, inert stone mm-hmm. monument of the kind that she assails in the poems where she's really hitting her stride in the famous Plath sense. So there's another interesting reversal. 
she is assailing herself in those late poems. It's not just Daddy who's the bad guy. She, there's a lot of self-hatred going Is there self-hatred here? This is one thing that I don't quite understand about this poem is what the affect is. It's so controlled and it's so beautifully written. I mean, I just wanted to say she's great with vowels. You know? Examples? Men are mended. I lie on a great anvil, like lie-ville, flat. I mean, the, 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 the way she modulates between the short vowel and the long vowel is somehow beautiful to the ear. But I, no, I can't, I don't get the affect so much. On the question of self-hatred, mm-hmm. I think maybe there's less here because she steps outside of herself and looks at herself as an object. Mm-hmm. We tend to empathize with objects more than we do with ourselves. Mm. And possibly she's the importunate cricket. cricket? <laughs> mm. I don't know what to do with that phrase. That's a great, but that's another well, great there, phrase. Well, that's some beginning. I mean, or that's she has reduced, she's been reduced anyway, but that's mm. not such a position of self-loathing necessarily. Mm. It's an importunate cricket in a quarry of silences. And that image is kind of positive. Mm. I th- I think that where there might be some affect that's difficult is there at the end, you know, I shall be good as new. Eh. More like a lament, more like yeah. self-loathing, more like a... Right. Isn't that the the famous Plath line that I shall I shall be good as new? That kind of line is is the Plath that I know, particularly. Drunk as a fetus, I suck at the paps of darkness. The food tubes embrace me. Sponges kiss my lichens away. The jewel master drives his chisel to pry open one stone eye. This is the after hell. I see the light. Anybody want to take a stab at what the tone is? Her voice reading it was kind of a poet voice, kind of oracular. Which is weird, right? Which is weird, yes. Wrong for this poem. Well, how would you read it otherwise? I mean, what would be another way to read it? I'm in another universe because this is Plath's English poet voice, BBC. I think this is a great poem, but I don't think that reading reading is... uh, misleading. No, but well, because she, what would that be, reading what would suggests, be a better reading of That it? reading suggests she's standing apart from this situation uh, and maybe not is not imagining herself as the person in the hospital. Well, she's trying hard not to. Well, trying hard. And if, <laughs> if in fact, I think I said that I think this was dating from 1962, this is, this is, that's a period of tremendous depression. Uh, and nobody quite, nobody at the BBC would ever notice that what she was going through. But that's that's too much reading. We're, we're talking about a poem of November 59 and listening to a reading of 62. So much can change. Two babies, uh, tr- uh, separation of the marriage, uh, a completely different poetic style. You know, she's kind of rereading the poem, that is reinterpreting the poem by reading it. I d- avoided your question. If though. you want to talk about a modernist who might have influenced this, I would say Yeats, who was very interested in stones, but he was also interested in masks. And this poem reads to me as heavily masked. I also was interested in these sort of three declarative sentences that I feel 
have something to do with the assertion of authority, like this is the city, and then the repetition of that, this is the after hell, and then there is nothing to do. Or there's actually another, this is the city of spare parts. Perhaps a devastating line. Yes. This is not the city where men are mended. This is the city of spare parts. That, to me, I, I keep hearing the word decomposition as the poem sort of... It doesn't fall well, apart because it's so masterful. With, but. With, with spare parts, you fix something. You don't mend it. Right. right? Good point. Let's go back to poet voice. We're, we're <laughs> trying to explore a possible distance or irony that gets created by poet voice rendering this poem. And you asked me how, what's an alternative reading? I mean, an alternative reading is much more demotic and idiomatic, but the problem with that is the poem is so masterfully put together that it, it mm. doesn't work if you just talk like a person who's just come out of the hospital. Okay. No, one, no one who's just been through this would say, this is the city where men are mended. Mm. Or the rhyming the at rhyme. the end is very uh, artificial. Mm. Hearts and parts and... Nurse Do and curse. Before we go around for final thoughts on this, I just want to go around once more on, once prior to that, inviting everybody to talk about this poem. We started this a little bit, Susan, but I want to finish it. This poem in relation to the confessional Plath, who is, for better or worse, most would argue better, famous for that breakthrough, being part of the Lowell, Sexton, Plath, um, confessional mode. There are others, obviously, Snodgrass. Maybe Rethke brought forward in time. Okay, so this poem in relation to that Plath, and it could be simply you're commenting on your own experience of being assigned to prepare this poem for poem talk as opposed to Daddy or something else. Well, the the fury that comes in the aerial poems is seems to be kind of tamped down here. There's still, I agree with you, this is a kind of a miserable experience that the speaker has gone through and is dealing with, but it's not unleashed in, the way it is in those tamped later down poems. by I think by the formalism? control, yeah, of the language and also this, um, the observances of the the focus on the things around her as opposed to her own emotional experience. Perfect. Huda? Yes, noticing everything around her as opposed to her emotional experience, but then it arrives at this really intense, I shall be good as new, as if like preparing for that, the, the anger that will come later. Like this is the making of this. This is the recognition of the fissures and the cracks and the mendings and then once you're past that and you've realized it, you know you're broken. Mm. And then that other voice comes, mm. the unleashed voice. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. I think, uh, you know, I'd like to call into question the word confessional because... Overall. Yeah, because I think late Plath, while there is that energy and that anger, it's still run through this mythological template, which as I recall, made me furious at her at a certain point in my life. The because I'm hurting so badly, I'm like a Jew in Nazi Germany, which I thought the proportionality of that was completely wrong. Um, You're not alone. So, I, you know, I'd like to say that even when we call her confessional, 
she's always creating a mythology. And and it's this kind of work that prepares her for that part of yeah. her confession. The mythology writing. here is borrowed from modernism. It's the modern city, the spare parts, the modern city, which is a city of 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 bits and pieces, detritus and not holes. This is the city where, this is the city where. So um, these are big declarations, high poetic declarations. And, and, and I hear what you're saying or the thought that occurs to me when you say it is she's never really interested in getting rid of that oracular, oracular mm. formalistic, high poetic approach to things, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It just, it's not confessional. So something truly confessional, whatever that means. <laughs> Poems are not feelings, they're words. But aside from that obvious thing, um, we're not getting to the heart of something. We're kind of moving around carefully staged figurations. Yeah, I think actually someone like Audrey and Rich is more confessional than the Plath later, the, in the an 60s, odd way. The 60s, 70s Rich. Yeah, yeah so yeah. that, uh, but she's not called a confessional poet. Is Interesting. She? Well, the, the early <laughs> 70s Rich is, is certainly doing that. Uh -huh. The Rich of this period is actually very it's formalistic. Very formalistic, so it's, too, it's, right? It's very complicated. <laughs> so I think we're going to go. Did you get a chance to talk about the confessional Plath? I think you did, Sally, but you want to add did. one more? I do. I want to um, bring up another subject, which when I noted in my book that says this poem was for November 1959, and her first child, Frida, was born on April 1st, 1960. So that was five months later. So when she wrote this, she she's was pregnant. four months pregnant. There's your fetus. And she's constructing something. Yes. And I thought, ah, she's possibly even not necessarily speaking in the voice of her own fetus, but transposing herself onto that being because there definitely are some sort of womb-like right and what here. is what is making we had this discussion off offline <laughs> what is making right making is a putting things together as a poet does as an artist does or it is reproduction oh, I hadn't gone there either that she's the hospital in making her hmm. own child yeah. she's the the trap of tubes is that's the, her is the child yeah. a stone of the belly well, the mouth hole crying their locations. Whoa. Just <laughs> drunk as a fetus. So the fetus is part of a simile. So if the poet is pregnant and, and momentarily imagining herself the, of the subjectivity of someone who's swaddled in bandages in a hospital, and, this, and the fetus is a simile to the mouth hole that feeds her, the mother, this is really... <laughs> No wonder people are walking around with pink torsos. No and, wonder. Well, one more round, final thought, something you came today to talk about in relation to this Palmer Plath that didn't get a, you didn't get a chance to. And Huda, we'll start with you. Any final thoughts on this? I'm going to go back to the word elusive and the idea of modernism. There's also the dead men who leave their eyes for others. Uh, mm. It seems like there's, there's nothing more terrible than being elusive than, than being uh, finding yourself elusive, like not being able to to actually grab who you are, and this idea of um, in breaking out of others' influence and others' effect on you. So it seems to me that that image again, I always go back to it: the rose, the elusive rose, and the reconstructed vase. Uh, 
there's something there that I came to talk about <laughs> and I'm going to take with me. Okay. Thank you, Huda. That's great final thought. Susan, final thought on this? I'm grateful that you asked me to talk about this poem because... But you were a little mad. Well, I, no, I was mad that you asked me to talk about Plath. Generally, right. But the, but the the poem I like because I have such... I had such strong feelings about Plath one way or another when I was much younger and then I lost her for a long time. But this is not the plath that I ever um, cathected with. Um, this, is a, this, this is someone who's a little, uh, there's a little less oomph to it, but it's, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautifully made poem. Thank you. Sally, final thought? And I do love the sounds of this poem, the consonants, the assonance, the men are mended, the stitches and fissures, and that she seems to carry throughout. So if you're just listening to it without necessarily trying to make complete sense of it, it is satisfying in a way. Fantastic. Uh, my final thought is very quick. Back to After Hell. After hell reminds me of, well, when, when someone's been away in a psych ward or been away for extended therapeutic, either drying out or recovering from some addiction, they call the next step aftercare. Mm. And it's after, after hyphen care. Now, if this is after hell, <laughs> damn, <laughs> because what happened before well, that? <laughs> um, and I See the Light has to be ironic if we go by my reading of After Hell. Uh, there's no, you, actually, I think the speaker is saying that she literally sees through the holes they've made in the cast, but uh, it's not seeing the light in the big sense. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to each spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world or just your world. So I'm looking around and I can't see who's ready to, Susan, gather some paradise? Sure. If I could, uh, if I could um, push a little tin fish product. Since Please, I'm, I want I'm you to. Editor yes. of Tin Fish. We yes. have two new books, one by a young poet named Leona Chen, who is still, I think, at Washington University in St. Louis, and she's a Taiwanese-American who's writing both in Taiwanese, Chinese, and in English. And then even more recently, I haven't seen it yet, is a book by Geneve or Geneva Chow, which is in Guernsey French and English, and she's putting together the island experiences of Guernsey and Hawaii, where some of her ancestors worked on the plantation. So in terms of sort of multilingual, multicultural work, that's mm -hmm. what I would recommend. That's great. Tell us, give us the sort of one-line description of the Tinfish Project overall. Uh, Tinfish Press, which was founded in 1995, uh, publishes experimental poetry from the Pacific region. Perfect. You've done that before. I've done that before. Yeah. <laughs> Sally gathers some paradise. Um, I just read a great first book by Shonda Feldman called Approaching the Fields, uh, published by LSU Press. She's been writing for a while, and this is a, a lovely debut. Fantastic. 
Who did I gather from paradise? Something multilinguistic and multicultural. I've been reading recently a Kurdish Syrian poet. His name is Salim Barakat, and working on some translations. He hasn't been translated in, into English yet, although he has a huge presence in other languages. But he is similar to this poem in extracting violently something very singular out of a lang- the language of others. Will you spell the last name? B-A-R-A-K-A-T. Barakat. Perfect. And did you say you were translating? So, so Kurdish is one of your languages? No, he writes in Arabic. He writes in Arabic. So the language of others, he Kurdifies it. He Kurdifies Arabic. Oh, is that hard? It. Is that difficult for you? No, he just takes it back to, to an, an old, to, to a time where Arabs today don't recognize it. He reclaims it. And you're translating it into English. English. Can you, sorry you didn't expect this, but can you tell us about what you're, the book you're working on currently? Selections from all of his collections. He has over 25 of them. Ah, fantastic. Thank you. So my gathering paradise is Susan Schultz, who's paradisal. So good to see you. And you come from paradise. Is Hawaii paradise? Allegedly, no, it's not No, okay, sorry. You come from a place that strikes me as paradise, but is is. But that's a myth. So, Anyway, we've got two new books, relatively new, from Susan Schultz. One is, and they're part of the Memory Cards series, although confusingly each one is called series, Thomas Traherne series and Simone Weil series. And I'm going to read a piece, a prose poem, from the Thomas Traherne series. And each of them begins with a phrase from... Traherne. And no, I won't read in poet voice. (laughs) So, things unknown have a secret influence on the soul. That's the quote. He'd been on the street for years, the vet, big island, six kids, all through college, full Hawaiian, a medic. He'd seen too much death. Vietnam didn't take him, but Afghanistan, his daughter, Major at 22, lawyer for men accused of rape, blown apart by an IED. Brought home in a box, his hands measure it for me, small. He tried to jump in the hole with it. What matter, Google cannot trace her. That the photos fail, the hometowns, the age, the rank. Why I want the accuracy of fact, not dream work. There are invisible ways of conveyance. What we do in saying is more than what words allow us. So that's a piece from Susan Schultz's Memory Cards, Thomas Traherne series. Well, that's all the after hell we have time for on Poem Talk today. (laughs) Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Sally Van Doren, Huda Fakradin, and Susan Schultz. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same exact amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Davy Niddle, Amber Rose Johnson, and Tonya Foster join me in a discussion of Gwendolyn Brooks' poem, Riot. This is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>